Welcome to Equosity, the podcast about all things equine with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexander Kurland. I'm the author of Clicker Training for Your Horse and other books and DVDs on clicker training. Normally, I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. But this week, we're going to bring you a very special interview. In July, I had the very great privilege to attend Anya Barron's annual international workshop. For those of you who aren't familiar with Anya's work, she's a superb classical dressage trainer. The horses she trains are a true joy to watch. Anya describes her work in this way. She says, my passion is classical equestrianism because for me, this is the only way as a rider to treat the horse with feeling and respect. In other words, to gymnasticize the horse using sensibly structured exercises in such a way that it can carry its rider gracefully and in balance without suffering any harm. That sentiment, that quote should sound very familiar to those of you who've been listening to these podcasts and hearing me talk about balance. Because as you've probably gathered, balance is a central pillar of the work that I teach. So I've been very interested in Anya's work because there is much there that is very familiar, very compatible with what I teach, and philosophically, very, very much we're on the same page. So I enjoy her workshops. I've attended, I think this is the third year that I've attended, and each year my trips over have been organized by Michaela Hempen. So I'm very grateful to Michaela for creating these opportunities for me. And this year was especially fun because we were joined by a group of eight other clicker trainers. Michaela organized this part of the trip. We stayed together in a holiday house. We shared meals and lots of laughter and really great discussions. And towards the end of the week, as a very special treat, Anya set aside some time for our group to sit down with us and answer any questions we had. We met in her library after a full day of presentations. It's a beautiful wood paneled room that houses several hundred texts on riding and training horses. So that was the background for our interview. We were sitting around in a circle and we each took turns asking questions. Dominique wasn't able to join us for this, but that's okay because part of the fun of adventures is being able to tell others about them. So at the end of this podcast, Dominique is going to be joining me to share her thoughts on the many subjects that were covered in this interview. So be sure to listen all the way to the end. And now sit back and enjoy, as we did, an evening with Anya Barron. Okay, so first of all, thank you immensely for doing this. Thank you immensely for this amazing week. Thank you for coming. Yeah. <laughs> so let me tell you a little bit about the audience that this podcast reaches. Um, so this will be for the people who are interested in my work in the clicker training, but also it's reaching people who just love horses, love animals, and like the overall tone. So we have dog trainers, we have horse People. We have some people who do not have a clue what classical dressage is. So I'm going to begin with that question. And what I'd like today is we have this wonderful group together. I've been traveling with this group of eight clicker trainers, which has been a really fun week. And last night we, uh, at dinner, we talked about, well, what are the questions that you want to ask Anya, because there's nothing like having this opportunity and we say, so what are your questions? And you know what always happens. We go, questions, questions. I'm not brave enough to ask a question. So we we sat around last night and came up with a lot of questions. And um, 
and so at times I may ha ask someone to come up and, and move so they're closer to the mic because I think sometimes people can articulate their question more clearly when it's coming from the heart than I can translating it. But the first thing that I want to ask is within the clicker training, we often think in when we're teaching of example, non-example. Mm -hmm. So what that means is we all have a pretty good idea of what a chair is, mm -hmm. you know, but looking around at what people are sitting on, we're all sitting on something, but until you have seen the stool, the bench that some of the people are sitting on, you don't know that just because you can sit on something doesn't make it a chair. Okay, so you need non-examples to really understand the example. Mm -hmm. So in terms of what is classical dressage? So if somebody says, it's very in vogue these days in the United States to say, oh, I, I ride classical dressage, I have an Iberic horse. Mm -hmm. um, and surely there has to be more to riding classical dressage than having an Iberic horse. And we've certainly seen this week that you've presented Libazoners and the Iberic horses, but you've also shown us Warmbloods, you've shown us Arabs, you've shown us that beautiful Akaltiki, you've shown us Halflingers. In past years, you showed us the Tinker horse. So to help people who have not had the pleasure of this week. What is classical dressage? Some of the very basics. So classical dressage never belongs to one breed and also never belongs to an outfit. <laughs> classical dressage is uh, something that always goes with the nature of the horse and that means all kind of breeds. Breeds. So um, it's something if you work in a classical way, you have to look the body of the horse and also his character. And then you ask just things the horse also makes in nature. So we never ask for movements or something the horse will not do when he is in freedom. So this is the first point. Nothing artificial. All uh, natural movements, first thing. Then take care about the body and the character. Never work too fast, put the horse under the pressure or ask for things the horse is in this moment not able to do physically or of his mind. That's another thing. And at the end, we want to get a horse more uh, strong, not only in the body, more strong, more straight, more proud, and that really cooperates with the rider who a horse really very, very fine, reacting very fine on our aids, a horse in balance, that's the most important thing. And if we get this, automatically we will have a partner for all our life who likes to work with us together and who can get very, very old because then he's working in a very healthy way. Yes. Because he does not use one front leg too much or one hind leg too much and the other one almost not. Because when we are able to put the body in balance and build up the right muscles and work in a good mood that the horse is not contracted but relaxed and supple, the horses can get very, very old and work even our horses when they are 25, 26, they still work. So this is classical. And and we saw that this week, and we saw how clean the legs were mm -hmm. on these old horses. And this is something that I have, that I, that I really deeply know, is that good groundwork, good training heals horses. Mm -hmm. Absolutely heals mm -hmm. horses. And Michaela, that was one of the things that you were talking about last night, in that what you had learned in the past, you, it was basically one recipe for all horses. Do you want to sort of talk a little bit about what you were discovering as you, <laughs> as you started to explore Anya's work? Because you've been looking at Anya's work longer than any of us. Yes. Yes, so come closer to the mic. <laughs> it's long enough. 
Okay. Yes, I think the, um, what we normally learn is um, certain exercises. So you get your lessons and they tell you walk, trot, canter or the different uh, patterns in marina patterns or do shouldering and then you do maybe if you can, if you are able to do so, you do, you know, renvers or traversale across the diagonal, something like that. But it was never talked about which lesson to choose for which horse for which moment. So it was only when I came 2011 to the, the first time here that there's actually a system to it. And I know it's been written before, but nobody ever explained that to me in a writing lesson. So you would basically have a standard recipe, standard progression that you start with a horse um, riding. You start with straight lines usually. And then if you are good enough, maybe they will start teaching you shoulder in. But one, they never explained to you what for and it was also always the same lesson for the for each horse no matter what horse you are riding you do this lesson and this lesson and this lesson and when i came here the first time you were explaining um you know which lesson to choose for which horse for what reason and that for a horse that's naturally bent to the right for example you choose a different exercise on the right side compared to the left side so that that's i think that's something that you were really the first one uh, that made that differentiation, which I have not seen of any of the other trainers. And still today, because now I know from you and now I see when I read other people's articles, books, they never talk about that. They always still have, still now have the same approach of you do the shoulder in no matter what the horse's crookedness is. So one of our questions was, where did this come from? How did your, what you were teaching today who were your principal teachers? And I know one of the answers always is the horses, but how did this develop? No, I had um, a French master and a Portuguese master, and they really were working uh, in the sense of old masters because classical dressage is nothing new. Uh, it's just actually a little bit fashion, but I think most of the people, they don't know what they are talking about. Classical dressage is something very, very old, even 400 before Christ. Xenophon was writing something about uh, classical work because he discovered when he made a special training with the horse, he can use the horse in a much more easy way and his horse can longer work for him. And that was very important in the time you were fighting from your horse. If you always have to change horse, 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 it's always a new experience and you never know uh, what will happen. And if you can handle your horse very easy, just with your weight and a little bit uh, rain aids, uh, it makes it much easier if you have to fight. Uh, so that's something very traditional, very old uh, story behind this classical way. And the masters I had, they really have a big knowledge about the, the old books, the old masters and lots of experience. For example, one of them was a bullfighter. So he knows how to handle the horse only with one hand and with the weight. And how is the feeling if your life depends of a horse? Because that's something all of us, we never had, that our life really depends of how the horse is trained. And I think that made him a lot read the old books and so on, to be there on a, on a good, on a safe side, maybe. The training was certainly to develop a very responsive horse, a horse who was in good balance. But there's a real heart and caring for the horse that is so evident in your work that everything you do is for the good of the horse. And that's not necessarily the case when people are exploring dressage training. So where, how, does, how did you weave that? How does that become that central core to your work? I think you cannot separate it. It belongs really together. Because if you give the horse a very, very good training, makes no sense to give him not the best food. Because, yes, because then you have a problem. Maybe he's too tired, too hot, too weak, always something. So if I try to train him very well, I try to give him the best food. I try to give him 
when it's possible, with the geldings, is possible, the social contact. With the stallions is even much more work because they are living out of a group of horses, so they are lonesome maybe, but um, they have me. So for the stallions you have to take care a lot of more. So for example, we never walk here uh, and along the, the boxes and don't look to the horses. When I walk there, I say, ah, oh, Safi, you're sleeping. Ah, oh, hello, Meru. So they always hear me, they see me, and they know oh, I'm somebody. So yes, it's important. This contact is important, not to ignore the horse and just walk there. No, no, look at him. Look. Sometimes you see, ah, oh, today he's a little bit tired. Today is this. So I know very well how they are. I try to give them, of course, the best food I can. I try to put them on the field if they want. One hates the flies, so he has not to go out. One a little bit more in the morning, the other in the evening. So you look how they are and what they prefer, because only if they feel good, they give you the best. No, So all this belongs together. And you cannot say just training and the rest, no. If you want to have a healthy horse, is a much more than only training. But one thing is true, if you make everything correct and a bad training, you destroy all. So the training is really something in the center. But all the planets around should be okay too, no? But uh, of course, the training is the, the center of all. There, there are many questions that I want to explore from that, but I think before we jump there, Rebecca, you had a question about the balance and just the whole, how do you work all of these horses and always work the horse that you are riding? I'm just always very amazed seeing you riding and maintaining your beautiful position on the horse. And I was just thinking about how each horse um, comes with their own unique crookedness and you as a rider have to attend to their crookedness. And of course the horse, as we all know, or those of us who ride know, <laughs> that um, they do like to position the rider where it's most comfortable for the horse. So I was just wondering, your goal as a rider, of course, is to develop best possible balance and alignment for each horse. And you ride so many horses every day. So how do you make sure that you are not carrying on one horse's crookedness when you go to the next one because it's somehow in your body i guess <laughs> so i was just wondering how how the, how you make sure uh, that you ride each horse to help them with their own balance yes that, that, good... that will not happen what you are. No, <laughs> that can never happen because in the moment i change horse i get part of another body so I cannot take the problems from one horse to the next because in the moment I sit there, I'm be part of this. I will be part of this horse. So a transfer is not possible. So you put the bottom on the next horse. You walk. I always walk with long reins first, for example, 40 meters, and you feel already. Oh, he wants to put me here or there. He's here not straight. So I take reins. In the moment you take reins, you feel the rest. You, you have an idea without reins, and when you take reins, you, you get the, the, okay, you are on the right way, aha, okay, it's like I thought. And then you start your gymnastic. And if I ride the next horse, I have the same sensation. I say, ah, he is here, he is here. So every horse puts you in another position and tells you, or yes, tells me what he needs. And then I try to do my best. Was that the answer? That was perfect. And I just had an additional question. <laughs> so um, since um, you are, um, I mean, you are really an athlete. So at the end of the day, after really giving each horse what they need, um, you have your own probably misalignments in your body. So how do you make sure you maintain your own healthy balance? Do you do anything besides riding? <laughs> I'm curious. <laughs> I'm curious how, can, how I can uh, keep my body in a good shape. I know how or what I should do, but I tell you, there's no time because the day starts a little bit after six o'clock in the morning and ends actually 1.30 by night. So last night was two and a half, I think. I went to bed. So 
I know sometimes uh, gymnastic would be necessary now and um, sometimes I feel my legs get very heavy, I have to do something and then you have to have the decision, is it better to go now to sleep half an hour more or make gymnastic, what is better for the body, so I decide <laughs> each night and the last two nights I decided it's better to sleep a little because if no I'm sitting here like that and sometimes one o'clock by night, I start to do my gymnastic. And is Froni, who was here in the morning, she gave me, it's just three exercises, very important for me. And if I just do these three things, if I would be able to do them every day, it's all perfect. Never pain, never tired, nothing, no problem, nowhere. But if I don't do it for two weeks, my body tells me, hey, hey try a little, <laughs> or I feel my, my uh, stirrups get longer and longer, but they have always the same length. So it means my leg gets shorter, so I have something to do. Yes, and you feel, oh, <laughs> and then I make it again and the stirrups are okay. So my body tells me what to do, but the truth is, is too much work. Is for, I think the last 18 years, I really have too much work. But on the other side, all this work keeps you fit. So is a lot of riding, is mostly seven hours riding a day, is lunging, is here we are on the hill. So I have to go uphill and down and uphill, I don't know, 20 times a day. I have to go to the field, I have to go with the dogs. So it's always moving, moving, moving. And I think that's also something keeps us fit. And of course, people are going to want to know, what are the three? <laughs> Exercise. Exercises ah, that you do. I cannot explain it. I can show you. <laughs> <laughs> so they are especially for me. For example, Vera, she has completely different exercises. And I have a very high muscle tonus. I'm, I, I, maybe I don't look so, but I am very strong because I made sports um, since I was a little child. I was always moving, swimming, bicycle, everything. Um, so I have lots of muscles and it's necessary for me if I do something, I don't need sit-ups to get belly muscles. I have already almost too much. I need just to stretch the muscles because for riding we always need the same muscles. So I have to stretch some parts of the body and that's all. If I stretch this, it's all okay. Other people need something to be stronger or to fix a position. No, that I don't need. I have just to relax and to stretch. So very similar to the horses, it's a, it's a study of one. So, so Heather, would you like to share? And I came last year um, to this week and I only came because Michaela and Alex had talked so much about your work and I thought this is a wonderful opportunity to see it and then continue on to Italy as we did. I just wanted to say, talk about my opinion as somebody who didn't know anything about classical dressage, had only seen walk, trot, riding tests and been in one of those and seen how everybody gets nervous and horses are tense and so on. And what I saw, I think I sat with my mouth open the whole week. Mm -hmm. It was amazing. The other thing that I learned via this was about bits. As you know, there's a big bit, bitless debate and you were able to explain the purpose of a bit. But I think it might be good here just to maybe briefly, mm -hmm. if you could just tell us your opinion on, on that. Bits. Yes. Yeah, because in our community there are a huge people want to be kind they have all the goodwill in the world they want to be kind and so part of being kind is to say well bits must be bad whips must and, be and bad spurs must yes, be bad spurs must be bad riding must be I agree bad yeah <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> but they're not universally damaging no no, no. No, no. So we start with the bits first, okay? And then I, we talk about the spurs. So with the bits, 
I was against completely. As a child, I was riding two years without bit, bitless. And um, then I discovered the influence is not very fine. It's a little bit like you put something on a wall and you make a little pressure and the horse reacts, okay? You pull a little on the rein, the horse turns the head. It's a little bit, there are no vibrations, nothing. The horse makes what you want, but without any vibration, without any shine or brilliance. And then I discovered, because um, I had the chance to ride a horse making Piaf, that the horse, without I made something with the reins, when he starts to do Piaf, he starts to chew on the bit. So it belongs together. When the muscles work, the, the, uh, the back works, hind legs works, the neck goes in a good position, the tongue bone starts to work and all the horses open the mouth that's why you see all the old monuments yes, with the mouth yes. open in piaf because the horse makes this and then and that's very interesting is also possible the other way around so does not mean you move a little bit the horse starts to do and then he's supple but it helps a lot so if you are able to make uh, how do you say stimulation no yes. with the bit that the horse starts to move the tongue or the this part, the the, oh, the yes, the, that mm -hmm. a little, uh, then the horse starts to relax. So all the horses completely contracted as soon as they do this. That's even when we eat or chew, we also start to relax. And then the horse starts to be much more fine. And then if you ever had the sensation, if you move, because the old masters, they always talk about the fourth finger. If you move a little the fourth finger and the horse starts to chew and gives you the flexion with really uh, an influence of, I don't know, is milligram, is, yeah, it's not kilo or tons, it's really it's like this and the horse makes this. If you feel this uh, conversation you can have with a horse, you never start to pull on his nose because there you don't have this good influence on the tongue and tongue bone and so on because all the body, all the things are connected. So we cannot uh, see it isolated. And um, as I felt this was really very, very good feeling. And then you always try to get this again, of course. Of course, you are right. Many horses are hanging with all the weight on the bit. Many riders pull and it's not correct. That's another thing. But it's not the problem of the bit or that the bit is bad for the horse. It's a problem of not good trained riders, not good trained horses. That's another story. But you don't make it better if they just ride with something on the nose because they are hanging on the shoulders anyway. They will have problems in the front legs or in the back anyway. So it doesn't make it better for the horse. It's really good to hear that. Like, now, to, to, to explain that yeah. to people, yeah. I think, because there's so much debate about it. Yeah. So yes, spurs. So with the spurs is more or less the same. If you have just influence with this part, what, what is the name? The calf. Yes, calf. this or with the heel is also without any vibration. But you can do all the basic work. You even have to with a young horse to put him a little forward. You touch here to make him to trot, canter, a little bit leg yielding is all possible. But later, the horses, they know so many different things. My horses, for example, and that was the reason why spurs have been developed. There's such a small point to start canter, to start piaf, passage. How do you think this horse knows, Bue, for example, now extended trot, now come back to passage or to trot or to piaf? He has to choose. So I have to tell him. So if I put the spur on the really good centimeter, tell him ah now this and then he reacts it's not something to um to kick him with the spurs or so no i just because never ever i could get this centimeter with this here how 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 it's too big there's nothing so i need this and touch me ah then he knows now passage ah now rain back now this and um, that is the interesting thing it's like you play piano and now here a little here a little here a little then you know you cannot say put the black things out we just <laughs> use the white things and then <laughs> no it doesn't work so you need all this and of course if the horse for example is sleeping on your leg not attentive you can give a short kick with the spurs but this is fair because you tell him hey, hey 
and then he reacts and then you leave him alone. It's much better than you make pressure hours and hours with the leg and go and the horse has no reaction, he gets more and more contracted. No, then this and then he's alive again. This is fair and there's never a horse here who doesn't like me because maybe I do this or sometimes with the whip, hey, ah, okay, okay, I'm here. Uh, this is not a problem. The problem is how people use it sometimes. But the origin sense of Spurs is a good sense, is to have a, a really fine communication. That's, that's great explanation <laughs> of that. Um, and whips. Thanks for that. Oh, yes. Ribs, ribs yeah. very important, is my longer arm. I don't want to touch with my hand the hind leg of the Haltikiner. <laughs> 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 so, with the whip, you have to know exactly what to do. There are several points at the hind leg or the croup you can stimulate the horse. Sometimes I see people, they want to touch a horse and it's like beating. Bum, bum. It's for nothing. If you touch the horse, you have to touch that there's really, there, there has to uh, flow energy. And the energy must be on the other side of the whip too, means on my side. If I stand there, is nothing. I have to stay there and the horse has to feel me and then he, for him is not a whip, for him is me who makes this and then he reacts. So <laughs> first of all you have to know where the points are and how to touch. And for example as I worked a lot with and for the circus, the old <coughs> lady of the circus, if you have a cigarette here, she puts it out of your mouth with the end of the whip and you have no cigarette. So she knew exactly if sometimes she had 12 horses around her and maybe the number three on the outside, he wants to bite his neighbor and she made and she put the whip, the end of the whip exactly in place that he knows ah, I should not bite. So this is something you have to learn how to handle the whip and uh, how to uh, get the points you want and each horse has points that he prefers and where he shows his brilliance and his energy and that you have to find out very quick. That's, yeah. When you think how whips are used in the normal horse world. It's not to beat it's, a horse. Yes, yes. It's for example like something, um, sometimes it's for example like something like acupuncture or so. It's not to put a needle here inside. No, you have to know where and if you get the right thing you feel it's like electric thing passing through you, but you have to catch the point and then you have a maximum effect, no? It's not to put a needle in a, a human body. It's not like that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Cues? Yes. Because they lead straight into cues. Yes. What is that? Cues. In, in the work we do, we call them cues. You're using them as signals and stimulus. Mm -hmm to get behavior started. Mm -hmm. I'm not a horsewoman. Mm -hmm. I love horses from my childhood. I had to focus so hard to see how refined and elegant your cues were because you know your horses in the movement you want and you've taught them that a cue is a tiny, mm -hmm. tiny, the signal is the tiniest mm -hmm. bit. How do you teach uh, your horses the process of the signals that you want them, whether it's a shift in weight or change in the leg, or I watched when you, the last horse you rode today and you were doing a passage, and thank you. <laughs> and at one point in time, you put both reins in one hand and you adjusted your glasses and the horse did not change because the signals from you were exactly the same. So how do you teach them such refined, small, elegant signals? <laughs> First of all, <laughs> when I put my glasses back, he doesn't realize because it makes for him no difference yes. if the reins are in two or in one hand. So I gave, th I didn't think about it even. I put the second rein here and put it here. So for him it was the same. And then I took it again. So if you make a big movement with the reins, he will yeah. feel it. So the, the big art is yeah. <laughs> that he doesn't realize. Yeah. So next um, thing is um, riding is not as easy <laughs> as giving signals. If you want to uh, ride the horse really fine, 
first of all, never ask something he is not able to do in this moment. So I have to know exactly now he can do this or this or this. Because even if he wants, but if he's not in the moment that he's able to do it, and I give fine signals, even if he wants, it will not work because he cannot. So that's the first thing, to know what is possible now or not. And other thing is, of course, you train the horse for many years and you must, um, you should control your body 100% is not possible always. Uh, when I see photos of me, I throw most of them away because the position is not good. But we try, we try to coordinate our body the best we can, never disturbing and really every movement I do uh, should help him and tell him what to do. And I always try to do it less, uh, less strong, less strong, less strong. And the truth is, if you work with Pua, I work, I think, with the Lusitano for three years. At the end is, I think now I want to do this. And he knows already because he, for example, as he's very uh, motivated always, he is trying to do it before I tell him, I think, and he wants to do it. And then I have to tell him, no, uh, wait a little. And that's another problem. So first, of all, you try to think on what you do, but before you have to be sure that it will work. And then you try to do the less you can. But all the fine signals only work um, when the horse himself is also in balance. With the horse on the shoulders, you don't do anything. You can give fine signals, no reaction. So and you've, you've, you've spent a lot of time talking the best couple of days about balance. Mm -hmm. In the United States and in other countries, balance means something completely different. If you're mm -hmm. a balanced trainer, uh, it means a completely different mm -hmm. uh, set of the way you treat an animal. Mm -hmm. So can you describe what balance mm -hmm. means for you? Mm -hmm. Balance is very easy to explain. Balance means that the horse has on each leg the same weight, and that's balance. And normally the forehand of the horse is a little bit more heavy. The hind, uh, the, the part behind is more light. And when we put our weight on, it's <coughs> even more on the forehand. So now we have to try, and that doesn't exist, to put weight from the front to the back. That doesn't exist. The horse has always his kilos here and his kilos here. But as soon as we are able that the horses start to bend the joints in the back, he takes a little weight and he starts to be more active here and the front comes a little bit more flexible, more mobile. So this is one part of the balance is to make the front a little bit lighter and that the horse is more engaged <coughs> in the back. That's one part. But, and that is what most of the riders forget and then it will never be brilliant. The horse has also uh, a part in the length because you put weight from the front to the back but then you have if you if you um, tie divide. It, if you divide the horse in the center there's always one side more strong heavier and one side a little bit bended one side stiff so the big art is not only from the front to the back as is mostly written the art is also the length of the horse to put this in balance so means that left right has the same weight and that's really complicated that's even much more complicated than to make just the front a little bit more light i enjoyed the examples you gave us where you would say a horse was heavier on one side and all the exercises to warm him up or her up mm -hmm. was to help that other side mm -hmm. to create flexibility mm -hmm. that you knew you needed but we could see mm -hmm. through the exercises so mm -hmm. For us who are learning about how you train balance, it's um, front and back, side to side, all is equal mm -hmm. in skill sets mm -hmm. and muscle tone and skeletal structure. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, for example, if you take um, dancing lessons, sometimes you make easy steps to the right, you just cross here and here and another step to the right. And then you should make the same easy steps to the left and it will not work because 
one thing is maybe your body is a little bit not coordinated or you cannot open your leg so good to the left other thing is here in the head we are not really uh, prepared to do things to this side and this side in the same way and that's what we want of the horses and that needs a lot a lot of training and if you have a physical uh, physical problem that you're for example like this is even more difficult because then first of all we try to put you like this but when you are here does not say that you can use your body to each side in the same way so that's uh, more that needs uh, more training even more so uh, to end um, for the audience what they can't see uh, is that you require the, the riders and the horses to be equally balanced so that they can perform yeah. at best. Yeah. If you get this, it's made. But the problem is, we cannot say today we try to put you two in balance and it's made in one hour. No, it's a process of years. And if you get it after, I don't know, six, six years or so, <laughs> it's not something that will rest. Maybe tomorrow the horse has a bad day. Pfft all gone. Tomorrow the rider is with the head somewhere or is like this, all gone. So even during one lesson you lose it a hundred times and then you have to do, ah, I lose it here, I do this exercise. Ah, now he's getting heavy here or contracted, I do this. You always do all the time something against losing balance. That's the problem. And only in the seconds you have it, everything looks brilliant. But then in between is always something to do. Ah, okay, now it's brilliant again. That's the problem. Thank you. There's the music. We're not even halfway through our evening with Anya, but this seems like a good place to stop and to invite Dominique to join me so we can do a wrap-up of what has been discussed so far. So, Dominique, welcome. Sadly, you weren't able to join us for the workshop, but over the years, you have certainly seen many, many trainers. You've watched some superb horse people, and you've also seen trainers whose work was not to your liking. It's very much example, non-example. There's a lot to be admired in the horse world and much to be deplored. You've also listened to me talk endlessly about balance. So you can hear from this conversation with Anya why I enjoy her work. Her philosophy towards training and horses really resonates with me. So I'm curious, what are your thoughts as you listen to this conversation? Well, first of all, Alex, I wish I had been with you guys because this conversation is so amazing. It reminds me a little bit, you know, when I founded Cavalia, the long discussion, fascinating discussions I used to have with Frederic Pignon and Magali Delgado, who were very much in the same kind of uh, spirit that Anya Buran is. Um, and... We would spend, you know, e entire evenings talking about this. And one of the things that um, I think we're going to get out of this conversation, which will be in many parts, and I've had the privilege to listen already to all the, um, the different parties to help us, um, guide us on how can we tell if someone is really in the same spirit as Anya is or not. Because some of the things you will hear during these conversations have been recycled or reused by not so talented trainers. And in some of the parts of the conversation, someone will be asking, how can I know? And I think that's one of the great uh, takeout from this conversation because, you know, when you when you first arrive in this world, um, you don't you don't know everything about it. It's just there's so many parts in it, um, and uh, writing and classical dressage are sophisticated uh, disciplines. And so it's good to have someone who has that depth of experience to help us, um, you know, really see um, 
help us find the right resources um, to be to go in the right directions. Yes. So uh, I think, well, first of all, this, you know, going through what classical dressage is um, was very, very interesting. And when Ether asked the questions about the bits and the spurs and the whips, I thought that was golden because all of us, we wonder about this. Yes. It's a major question. It's a major question. And, you know, it's a, actually a very old question. And I've done a little bit of research, um, and I'd like to read you a couple of things. Okay. It'll be pretty short, but I went back to the old masters, the ones in Greece, in France, who start, who were the first ones to write about horsemanship. And this debate is as old as this. So uh, even Anya talked about Xenophon 400 years before Christ. Yes. So one of the things you wrote, and this is my own translation, so please bear with me. I mean, it's me, Dominique, Canad French Canadian translating, but uh, <laughs> you'll get the picture. Yes. So this is what Xenophon's writing. If you want to have a war horse who attracts all the eyes with his beautiful movements, you must refrain from pulling on his mouth and using the spurs and the whip, which are the means by which most people think they can make their horse shine. In reality, they produce the exact opposite. 400 years before Christ. Now we're going to move forward a little bit in history. Gonna write, I'm going to read to you something Salomon de la, Brie, de la Broue, who was one of the first French écuyers to write on horsemanship 16th century. Again, it's my translation. Okay. So he's talking about his master Pignatelli, who was another one of the great, great masters who wrote about uh, horsemanship. So he says about Pignatelli, he made the horses so docile and doing the most beautiful airs without using anything but a simple and common bit and cavisol. And then Pignatelli, if the bit, I like this one, it's very pragmatic. Yes. If the bit had the miraculous property of developing a horse's mouth and making him obedient, the riders and horses would be skilled at the moment they come out of the store meaning the store where they buy the bits. Oh. Yeah, which I thought yes. is, is pretty clever. So this debate, you know, it, it hasn't started with clicker training. It's been going on for, for a long, long time. And, and it's true, you know, when, when Anya says, you know, the problem is not the bit, uh, it's the not so well-trained riders, I do believe that is true, but I do want people to stay critical because I have heard this from many writers and some of them were not skilled enough. You know, I've heard someone say to me once, you know, spurs are like razors in the hands of a monkey. Well, the person who told this to me kind of looked like a monkey to me. <laughs> You know, so it looks like people sometimes do not have, I don't know, the capacity to self-evaluate. And then they use this kind of notion to justify using the whips and the spurs and the bit when what they should be doing is going to one of Anya's workshop, you know. So I, I think it's important when you hear this to really make sure that you trust the person who is telling you this. Well, I think Anya would agree that there are many people who should not be, for example, using spurs yeah. because they don't have the stability in their seat or their leg to be using the spur as the tool that she uses it. They're using it more as a punisher, as a jab in the side, without the refinement that she's talking about. And if your leg is not stable, uh, so that you're, you're hitting the horse in the side with your foot, with your leg, um, without intending to, 
you're a writer who is not ready for this particular tool. The same thing I think she said in the podcast that there are many people who should not be using bits, certainly, certainly not the double bridles because they no, don't have certainly not. they don't have the stability, the the knowledge. But I think it yep. is also really interesting to listen to somebody who ha- who is truly a knowledgeable and very skilled rider. So you have somebody who rides multiple horses every day, seven, eight hours a day in the saddle. For years and, and years and years. Yep. For years. And she's had uh, masters as trainers. So she's had opportunities that most of us do not have. And to listen to what it is that these tools do for her. So in the hands of a highly trained master, what are these, what, what do these tools do? And then I think that helps us to evaluate, am I ready for the use of bits or the use of, do I need, will I ever need the kind of precision that Anya's talking about when she talks right. about the use of a spur? So, for example, I don't. I think that most people don't. Correct. Because it's a it's a very it's a very select group of people, right? Who but, but isn't it, should be using these tools? But isn't it interesting to hear why someone like Anya uses them? Why somebody who cares as much as she does for horses and has their welfare so much at the core of everything that she does, what she thinks this tool is for. And then if I look at the spur and I say, well, actually, when I ride, I don't, I'm not yet at that point where I'm asking for such precision and where the repertoire that is in my horse is is requiring such precision. I don't need to think about graduating into the use of spurs. So I think it's really interesting to hear why somebody like Anya chooses to use these tools and how she uses them. That's right. In the same way that that we have, I mean, one of the analogies that's made a lot is that of knives. You can use a knife to stab someone to do great harm, but in the hands of a surgeon, a scalpel does great good. So Yes, but then I will... I will... I will uh, continue on this analogy of medicine. Yes. I think for me, I always think of Hippocrates. Um, do no harm. At least do no harm. Right. And I think that many times people will use this kind of um, language that Anya is using. They will use the language of precision, of brilliance, but in reality, if you shut the volume off and you really look at what they're doing, they are not using it for precision. They are using it as a tool to punish. And so what I'm inviting people to do is stay critical because this this kind of, of language, when it comes from someone you trust, and again, you know, you will... Anya will give us some guidelines to make the difference between people who talk well and people who have really the knowledge and the refinement that she has. And so I urge people to continue to listen to this because I think it's in in the, um, well, it's later on in the conversation where someone will ask, how can I pick a good dressage writer? Right, right, right. And I'll share two experiences that happened after. So the week after Anya's workshop, we had our science camp with uh, Dr. Jesus Rizal Ruiz and Mary Hunter and myself. And we had as a bonus treat, we had a Feldenkrais practitioner who's very skilled. She's the, the woman who was guiding us, really understands balance. She was uh, a ballet dancer and she danced in Paris on the stage with uh, Barishnikov. So a superb dancer. And she is also 
uh, coaches the Italian rhythmic, rhythmic gymnastics team and has coached them now through two Olympics. So she really understands movement. And we had the very great privilege of having her guide us for four days through the Feldenkrais sessions. And on one of the days, the last day, she did this really neat session where the focus was all on really small movements of the lower jaw. So that's, you were just sitting and doing these very odd, um, sort of non-habitual, but very small movements. And I could feel throughout my whole body things connecting up uh, as I followed her instructions. And when I got up, I was not just standing differently. I was walking completely differently in a wonderful mm -hmm. way. It felt effortless. It felt right. like I could have climbed to the top of the mountains. It just, mm -hmm. it was, oh, it was amazing. It felt so good to move. Everything was so effortless. And all we had done was move our lower jaw following her instructions. And that was a huge aha in terms of some of the things that I know in terms of using reins, using bits, that this connection in the riding that goes all the way through the horse's body and to feel it in my own body was like, oh, what a gift, what a gift. And then when I got home the uh, week or so ago, I went up to the local county fair where the the goat herd that I my goats come from, they're the um, they were on exhibit. It's the, this is the sort of like the 4-H group that the sister Mary Elizabeth, who who has this herd that she runs with her children. So I went up um, and was was watching what they were doing with the goats, and it was in the evening, and I was helping with some of the the pre show training. It was it was really fun. And as I was walking out, I walked past the horse arenas. And so, of course, I slowed down a little bit. And there was a teenager riding her horse, a Western rider, and she's going around the arena. And as she came close to me, her horse did something that she didn't quite like. And so she took one of her reins, and this horse is in a shank bit, a curb bit, and gave a sharp snatch on the rein. Right and told him, no, ouch. And so there's the counter argument of if you cannot control your emotions, hmm. then many of these tools need to be taken away. Yeah. If I'm going to say that my whip is an arm extender, and we've all heard that, I've talked everybody to, says right, that I say that because it is what it is it's well yeah in your case I trust you that it is your arm extender but you hear this all the time it's a whatever we want a stick a uh, uh, foam pool noodle whatever it is whatever it's made out of we call it a whip and whips can whips can be what that word is it can be a whip to inflict pain, or it can just be an object that happens to be like a pointer that you can extend. Uh, if I'm giving a presentation and I want to point to a particular part of a, a of the screen that you're looking at, it's that's an arm extender. But if I'm going to use an arm extender slash whip, then I have a huge responsibility to be able to control my emotions. And if I can't, if I'm going to flare up, if there are old repertoire in me from previous training that every now and then gets triggered, as Jesus, as Jesus would say, reproduce the conditions and you will, you know, reproduce the behavior, then I need to be very, very careful about using some of these tools. And it may be that I shouldn't use a whip, and I certainly shouldn't use spurs. And maybe I need to be on the ground with a lead rope with a flat halter before I put a bridle that's got reins attached to a bit 
and work out my ability to control my emotions. But I've seen people, Alex, who control their emotions very well and use the whips, the spurs, and the bits as threats, very clear threats. They are very cold about it. I mean, I've showed you some of my DVDs where, you know, some trainers teach you uh, how to methodically increase the pressure. And some of these videos are pretty explicit. Yes. Um, But then we're talking about a completely different philosophical core. So in those three, that all training methods have three layers. They begin with belief system. And out of your belief system emerge your key core principles. And one of the key principles that I train by is safety always comes first. And for both the horse and the handler. And then out of your principles will develop the methods, the the how-tos. How am I actually going to train and solve this problem? So those people who are saying, yeah, take your take your stick, your arm extender, and hit that horse and and hit that horse in the face that it's okay. Their philosophical, their core belief system is it, 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 there there isn't even an overlap. No. I would say when I listen to Anya and when I watch her with her horses. And when I watch what her riding, and when I see these horses that come into her barn that are so damaged by mm-hmm. previous training experience, and, and we're able to watch them year by year by year, and we see them thriving, and yeah. they seem to be... Happy. Well, if, if you tell me I'm going to a traditional trainer, I want to go to Anya's. <laughs> Sure, no yes. question. Yes. But you know, I think the history is still, we are, the history is still being written. This is not finished. Yes. I mean, you, she's, she's also, you know, she's, she's on a mission for the welfare of the horse. And I think that's part of what our contribution to as clicker trainers is because we are always looking at how to motivate our horses. One of the uh, side effects that we see when we clicker train our horses is that they are super motivated. And so I think it's still being written and we have, if if what we're doing in all of the research and the science that we are exploring can be added to all the knowledge that people like Anya have. Wow, it's going to be amazing. Because the pool of knowledge that these people have, these people like her who spend eight, 10 hours a day, seven days a week, 365s, and have been doing this for years, have seen the results of their work. I mean, these people, they're treasures. Their knowledge is so deep, you know, and so... And we are, we are, some of the things they say, you know, now we have the perspective of the science to help us understand what they have been experiencing in their uh, manage, you know, themselves without necessarily having the words of the science. We, we have a part to play in this, you know, I think we, we are pushing and it's for her, I'm sure having nine clicker trainers in her workshop must be something special. You know, she must feel this trend. Yes. Well, I think it's incredibly important that there are writers such as Anya who are preserving the history that are. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That that this. And she speaks so well of it, too. Yes. That this. She explains it so well. This knowledge, this great horsemanship that has been passed from master to apprentice down through the centuries. We we mustn't lose it. And oh, so no. it is really important. And what it what is, I think, so really encouraging is that it is that this history is sitting in the hands of somebody who cares so deeply about horses mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. truly loves horses and who is absolutely has their welfare first and foremost. It is not a it is not first about how showy can I make this horse, but how, 
how comfortable can I make this horse? And, yeah, and so, we'll hear more about yeah, that in the next podcast. She will go absolutely. more in details. Absolutely. This can, history I'm, is in good hands. And, and I think it is really useful for us to be brave enough to look outside of our, our own personal experience and knowledge to see what is going out on elsewhere. And there is lots of training and lots of riders whose work I don't want to look at. Yeah. And sometimes the words do sound the same, but what I see in the arena, I don't, I don't want to look at. But I find that with Anya, I go there with great pleasure. And I hope well, I'm not surprised because, you know, as I was hearing this conversation, the more it unfolded, the more I thought, oh, in, the, in terms of the spirit, there's so much in common. Yes. We have so much in yes. common. Yes. You know, with the, with the clicker community, there is so many things that we share. Yes. So I think that's a great teaser for, yes. for next week's podcast. And so we'll, we'll uh, let people listen to part two, and then we'll come back for another round of talking about what we think of it. So we'll... we'll I can't wait. Yep, we'll touch base again very soon. Bye. All right. Bye-bye.